If you've ever had a morning like that, more than a hundred times. Why does it always happen on Sunday? That is my question. Well, the doctrine of sanctification, that is the doctrine that calls Christ followers to be progressively transformed into the image of Christ, is a highly practical doctrine. While many associate the so-called sanctified life with clerical robes or the liturgy or being a Bible-thumping do-gooder, the doctrine of sanctification actually hits us right where we live, hits us right here and right now in a world of never-ending laundry, unceasing bills, unrelenting economic crisis, that tests the patience of the most devout person. There's a real possibility, as I've already seen by the indication of your hands going up, that you can identify with one or more of the characters in that video clip. Perhaps your attitude even today is not exactly what it needs to be. Perhaps your attitude is not what it needs to be with your spouse or with your one of your children or with a friend or an associate at work or even someone here at Christ Fellowship. And you know what the Bible teaches about standing holy before God. You know that he calls you to be progressively transformed into the image of Christ. But you also recognize it is exceedingly difficult. The call to live a lifestyle of holiness is very clearly taught in sacred scripture. In Philippians chapter 2, the verses that precede the verses we will study this morning say this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Listen, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and and to work for his good pleasure. In the passage that we will look at here in just a moment, Paul gives very practical instructions on how to live that holy life. And so the title of the message this morning is The Antidote for Grumbling. And I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I'll give some explanation We are in the middle of, or I should say, in between uh, two studies. We just concluded a study on the attributes of God. uh, And for the next couple of weeks, I will deliver a few messages on the importance of financial stewardship. And then we will launch back into our study on the gospel of John. But for this morning, Philippians chapter 2, would you stand with me out of respect for the authority of God's word? Philippians 2, beginning in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you also shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Father, we thank you for the day that is before us. We thank you for uh, giving us grace uh, once again to live another day. We not only thank you for 
uh, grace that you have granted us as your people to receive salvation. We thank you for each of the, the small graces that we experience throughout the day. Grace to wake up, grace to come to church, grace to live the Christian life. We acknowledge, as, as Steve mentioned in the call to worship, that uh, everything we do is to glorify you. Whether we eat or drink, we do it all to the glory of God. May that be said of us today as we look at this topic of, of grumbling and disputing. I pray that you would uh, cut us to the quick and encourage us that you would uh, help us to understand the importance of what it means to live a holy life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <laughs> This morning, I want to ask a question. It's a practical question. It's a very relevant question. And it goes like this. What is the antidote to grumbling? What is the antidote to grumbling? I want to give the answer up front this morning and then walk you through progressively giving biblical explanation for that answer. The antidote for grumbling, you see, is a Christ-saturated attitude that results in three things. It results in godly character, it results in godly influence, and it results in godly encouragement. So I want to begin by looking at this antidote in general terms by discussing what a Christ-saturated attitude looks like. Look again at verse 14. Paul the Apostle, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says something that it, it once again is highly practical and relevant. He says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Do all things without grumbling or arguing. I want you to see three things as we begin to unpack the so-called antidote, which involves a Christ-saturated attitude. Notice, first of all, the proclivity to grumble. By virtue of the fact that most of you raised your hands after we watched the video clip and said, yes, I can relate to having a morning like that. In fact, Pastor, I can relate dozens and dozens and dozens of times. It just tends to happen on Sunday. We have a, a built-in proclivity to grumble. You could put it this way. We live in a grumbling culture. Several years ago, I read a story in the newspaper about a man who grew so upset at a man on a snow plowing machine that he took out a weapon and shot him. Say, why in the world would you shoot the snow plow operator? Well, we live in a grumbling culture. We grumble about the weather. It's too cold. There's too much rain. It's too windy, etc., etc. We grumble about our spouse. We grumble about our children. We grumble about our circumstances. We grumble about our lot in life. We grumble about what's taking place in our local churches. And we are, simply put, we are an argumentative culture. If you listen to talk radio at all, you recognize that we live in an argumentative culture. And I am convinced that some people in our culture simply argue for the sake of arguing. Have you ever known someone like that? The sky isn't blue. The sky is black. I, you, you find a person will argue with you no matter what you say. And there's a natural progression, I believe, between grumbling and arguing. Grumbling tends to begin under the table. You've seen it like this. It, it begins with the members of your family. It's under the table. It's, it's covert, you may say. 
But it only begins under the table. But then it begins to surface among friends and other members of your family. Next thing you know, you're grumbling about everything with the people in your sphere of influence. Now, the propensity to grumble is not an American phenomenon. It is a phenomenon that occurs among a fallen race. The nation Israel, I think you will remember, were expert grumblers. Israel was, was very skilled at the sin of grumbling. The prophet Jonah was also an expert grumbler. He grumbled about God and his call to go to Nineveh to preach the gospel to the Ninevites. He grumbled that God saved the Ninevites. He grumbled when the sun scorched his head. He grumbled after God uh, took the plant away that, that shielded his head from the scorching sun. Habakkuk was another man who grumbled to God when, learned, when he learned about God's plans to use the Babylonian army to plunder and punish Judah. And so Paul the Apostle, in the book of Philippians, he understands our propensity, our built-in inclination to grumble. And he also sees it among the believers at the church in Philippi. Secondly, I want you to see the particulars of grumbling. The particulars of grumbling. Paul here instructs the Philippians and, I should say, all subsequent believers. Once again, do all things without complaining or arguing. Let me say this. I think one thing I've learned over the years that our complaining serves as a sort of barometer for our sanctification. Let me say that again. Our complaining, our grumbling, our arguing, our bickering serves as a sort of barometer for our sanctification. Let me illustrate. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, as Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Notice verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. There's two words that occur in verse 15. The first that occurs is that word um, grumbling, grumbling. The Greek word is translated to to murmur or to mutter. It means to exhibit a secret displeasure of something. In short, the term means to have a bad attitude. And so I would ask you this morning, as the people of God, do you have a bad attitude? Grumbling tends to begin with a person or a group of people who, who grumble together. Have you ever heard the phrase, misery loves company? Grumblers love to find other grumblers to grumble together. And the, the saying is very fitting, misery loves company company in john chapter 7 verse 12 we read and there was much muttering that's the greek word translated grumbling here there was much muttering about him that is jesus among the people well some said he's a good man others said no he's leading the people astray look at the next word do all things without grumbling or disputing or arguing that's what the word means it means to question or to to argue or to doubt and so you see sinful disputing is linked to evil and is ultimately linked to the heart. You see, as Jesus indicates, what comes out of my mouth indicates what is in my heart. If you've ever known someone that has a problem with bad language, 
For a person who has a problem with bad language, you always know this. Something is malfunctioning in the heart. Something is malfunctioning in the heart. <clears throat> James chapter 2 verse 4 says, Have you not then made distinctions bet- among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's that word to dispute or argue or doubt. Jesus says in Matthew fifteen nineteen, For out of the thoughts or out of the heart come evil thoughts. That's the same word. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, that is porneia, theft, false witness, slander. Paul says in Romans one twenty one. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. That's the same word. And their foolish hearts were darkened. So we see this logical link between my attitude and the condition of my heart. Third, I want you to see with me the pathology of a grumbler. You see, the enemy of our souls, that is Satan, does not want us to to reckon with or to understand the pathology of a grumbler. He wants us to remain in a in a pattern of complaining and bickering and arguing. I have found this. That one way to determine where you stand with this so-called barometer of grumbling is what you're like in your car. This is where it gets really convicting. I can't believe he cut me. I can't believe he's going over the speed limit. Hurry up! Hurry up! Why can't you go more than, why can't you go 25 through downtown Everson? Why do you have to go five miles an hour? (laughs) I'm not the only one that's happened to. (laughs) What is it about this street? Hey, guy, it's 25 miles an hour, not two miles an hour, right? And so our propensity, I can tell I've struck a nerve this morning. Our propensity to grumble is like a a window into what's happening into our hearts. The enemy of our souls wants us to remain in this pattern of grumbling and complaining and bickering and arguing. He's like the great Oz and the Wizard of Oz who says... Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. This morning, we want to pull back the curtain so that we can get a a clearer understanding of the nature of grumbling. Notice a few things about the pathology of a grumbler. Number one, the grumbler typically begins by focusing on another person or a circumstance. Have you ever thought about that? It's, It's just very basic. I don't like him. I don't like her. I don't like the circumstance. And we, by nature, as sinners, we focus on that particular person or circumstance. Number two, the grumbler ultimately directs through the front door or through the back door his or her complaint against Almighty God. You see, in the Old Testament, Israel grumbled to Moses, as you remember, but whenever... Israel grumbled to Moses. Who was their chief complaint against? It was with God. Is they direct their, their, their complaint, their, their, their grumbling is directed at Moses. But really, it was more than on the horizontal plane. Their grumbling was directed in the direction of God. Number three, grumbling to God indicates more than mere grumbling. It indicates a lack of trust 
in God. And we've learned over the last several months that whenever we, we, we refuse to regard God as trustworthy, that heaps a great insult upon his character. The best way I can illustrate this is with a parent-child relationship. When, when a mom or a dad instructs his or her child to do a particular thing and that child disobeys, what that does, it does more than, than demonstrate a lack of obedience. It indicates a lack of trust. And mom and dad, you understand what it's like when a child disobeys you. It's more than the, the bare fact of disobedience that bothers you. It's the fact that your child refuses to regard you as trustworthy. And your child heaps heaps a great deal of insult upon you when they refuse to regard you as trustworthy. We are the same way when we refuse to trust a sovereign God. You see, grumbling is an act of rebellion. Grumbling is an act of rebellion. Grumbling is an act of ungratefulness. Grumbling, you see, is the mark of a discontent person. Grumbling is the mark of a person who refuses to believe and trust in the providence of God. And I might really kind of conclude this section by saying this, that grumbling is a sin that needs to be repented of. You know, we, we acknowledge the, the sin of adultery and we acknowledge the sin of sexual immorality and we acknowledge the sin of drunkenness. Those are the sins that, that people in, in our world are very familiar with. But now we move to a different kind of sin, but it is no less serious. It is the sin of grumbling. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced we all struggle with it, myself included. So I would ask this, what would happen? What would happen in our personal lives? What would happen in our families? What would happen in our churches if we swallowed the antidote? What would happen if we did it God's way? What would happen if we were committed to developing this Christ-saturated attitude? Well, the Bible helps us to understand that there are three practical motivations that spur us on to action. Look at them with me, beginning in verse 15. We've already seen that we are to do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then there is is, emerges what's called a purpose clause. A purpose clause, and it's indicated by the word that. That, or for the purpose of, that you may be blameless and innocent children. Without blemish. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. The first motivation we see to having this Christ-saturated attitude is godly character. And godly character is indicated in verses 15 and 16 with three very important words. Look in there with me. First of all, there is the word blameless. The word blameless. The, The Greek word really means this. It means to be free from fault or defect. It means to be a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who is above reproach. My late uncle used to say it this way, that a person who is above reproach, you can't get a handle on him. I like that. That really communicates. There is nothing in that person's life where you can say, this is what you did in previous years. No, we are people who live Above reproach, we are blameless. It's what you might call external moral integrity. 
And then Paul says that this person is an innocent person. That is to say, literally, he or she is unmixed or unadulterated. It means to be free from guile. It's used here to refer to to a, a precious wine or a metal. And here you might say this is in contrast to a person who is blameless, which is external moral integrity. An innocent person, you might say, has internal moral integrity. Moreover, Paul says this person was, is without blemish. That is, this is a person who cannot be censured. As I was reviewing my notes this morning, I got to thinking, what would be, what would a person look like who could not be censured? Well, those of you who have been around for 20 or 30 years, that's many of you, remember what it's like for someone who's, who, who, who stands as a nominee for the Supreme Court. And what, what does the Senate do? The Senate fairly or unfairly censures that person. You remember Justice Bork? He's a man who was unfairly censured. You remember Clarice Thomas, who was eventually confirmed for the Supreme Court. He is a man who, in my humble estimation, was unfairly censured for political gain. And so what Paul is, is, is requiring here is, here is a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, who has godly character, and they can't get a handle on you. It is absolutely impossible to censure that particular person. And then finally, Paul says, we are children of God. And I would <laughs> say at this point, there are, there are two kinds of people in the world. It's very clear in Scripture. They are children of God and children of wrath. There are the believers and the unbelievers. There are the people who are going to heaven and the people who are going to hell. First John chapter 5 says it like this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we are children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Fathers, I don't know if you've had this kind of conversation with your children. I'm sure you have. Where I say to my children, it goes something like this. Abby, Nathan, what's your last name? Steele. Like, and dad, ask me a harder question. Well, my name, my last name is Steele. And then my response is something like this. Be a leader and act like a steel. Live according to all that you have grown up with. And the Bible is telling us this is you are children of the most high God. We are called then to be people of God who are blameless, innocent people who are innocent, who are without blemish. Second, I want you to see. Another motivation for having that Christ-saturated attitude, namely godly influence. Godly influence. And this is where the watching world benefits through our godly influence. Paul describes two terms here. One, which is found in the latter part of verse 15, is we shine as lights in a crooked and twisted generation. Have you thought about this? It doesn't take a whole lot of thought. As you read the newspapers and listen to the morning news, last night I received word, as many of you did, that there was a shooting in Michigan. And this morning I wake up, six people are dead. We live in a twisted, messed up 
world. And Paul says our responsibility is to be godly people, to have a a godly influence on our culture, namely to shine as lights in a crooked and twisted generation. That word crooked is a word that can be translated as perverse or wicked. And do we not live in a wicked generation? We live in, as, as Americans, we live in a culture where the Supreme Court just legitimatized same-sex marriage. We live in a wicked culture. The word twisted means to distort, to oppose, to plot against the saving purposes and plans of God. Simply put, we live in a culture that is more fascinated in personal pleasure than the purposes of God. We live in a culture that is more in tune to hedonism than the holiness of God. Indeed, we live in a crooked and twisted society. Here the benefit is that Christ followers would would shine as lights. I would ask, is this not exactly what our culture and our community needs to see? They need to see Christ fellowship. They need to see the local church shining as lights, not people who are griping, grumbling, mumbling professors of Christ. The lost world does not need to see Christians who are are merely play actors, who act one way at home and another way at church. I don't know what your thoughts were when you saw the video, but I've seen that video a number of times and I always get the shivers because it's the father in that particular clip who is just not a nice guy. He's yelling at his kids and he's mean to his wife and she's trying to put her makeup on and he's driving herky-jerky with the car almost intentionally. She's just like, what in the world is up with you? And the minute his foot steps into church, hi, how you doing? God bless you, brother. That is sick. Yet we're so inclined to being hypocrites. This world needs Christ followers then who shine as lights in a crooked generation. Now, Paul tells us how to do it. If you look with me in verse 16, how do we shine as lights in the world? He says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I love that phrase, holding fast to the word of life. Here's what it means. It means to firmly cling to the truth of the word of God. It means to pay attention to the word of God. It means to obey the word of God. Yet what I'm seeing in the contemporary church is the white flag, as I mentioned last week. The white flag has been hoisted high above many churches. And the church is saying this. We just don't care about same-sex marriage. We just don't care anymore. We give up. We, we don't care about immorality. We don't care about divorce and remarriage. We don't care about the sins that the scripture addresses. We just want to be all inclusive. We never want to judge. We never want to discriminate. We just want to love people. And those would be mistakes that will eventually lead the church down a very treacherous path. To hold fast to the word of life means this. It means to embrace the truth of the word of God. 
It means to flesh out the truth of the word of God. It means to faithfully proclaim the word of God. You know, young people, one of the ways that you can hold fast the word of truth is just by talking about the Bible. And that doesn't mean that, that, doesn't mean that you have to be a, a Bible thumper. But it does mean when your science teacher says that we live in a law, where ev- we live in a universe where everything happens by chance, and there is no God, and there is no purpose in the universe, that's a simple, but teacher, teacher, didn't the Bible say in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? That's what it means to hold fast the word of truth. Where we refuse to compromise with the truth of God's word. Where we refuse to trifle with the truth of God's word. We refuse to play fast and loose with the truth of God's word. We refuse to be hearers of the word only and embrace hypocrisy. The person who holds fast to the word of truth obeys the words of James chapter 1 verse 21. Here's what he says. Therefore... Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. We've seen the benefit this morning of embracing a Christ saturated attitude, namely The motivation, first, is that we would demonstrate godly character. Second, that we'd have a godly influence. And then finally, I want you to see the notion or the truth of godly encouragement. This is what I like to call the pastoral benefit. So verse 16 gives a really interesting portrait of who the Apostle Paul is. It gives an inside look as to what kind of a man he is. It gives a window into the, the heart of every pastor. He says, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Here's what I think Paul's saying. He's saying, if you receive the antidote, that is to say, if you embrace this idea of of having a Christ-saturated attitude that results in godly character, godly influence, that on the day of Christ, I can be assured that I did not waste my time. I can tell you this, by personal experience, that one of the most grievous things that I have experienced as a pastor is to spend time and energy Day after day after day after day in the life of another young man or man. And to ultimately have that person say, Pastor, I refuse to receive the antidote. I will continue to live a a life of, of grumbling and bickering and complaining. Paul says, may it never come to that. From time to time, you'll hear stories about a patient who refuses to receive medical attention. I've known many people over the years who have a a life-threatening disease and they refuse to receive medical attention. And oftentimes there are good reasons for that. They just say, enough's enough. But when a professing Christian refuses to receive the antidote, here's what it results in. It results in bitterness, which leads to ongoing ungodly character, a loss of influence for the sake of Christ and culture, and a group of shepherds who have broken hearts. 
If a professing Christian refuses to receive the antidote for grumbling, other people are affected. You know, we live in a culture where people say something like this. What I choose to do is my business. Have you ever heard that? It's my business and no one else's business. But here's what scripture teaches us. The scripture teaches us, teaches us that if I have a bitter heart, it not only influences my family, it influences people in my extended family, and it, experience, it, 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 it uh, has a negative effect on people in my community. That is to say, grumbling is a poison. Grumbling is a, is a toxic venom that spreads far and wide. Hebrews 12 says it like this, Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without, no one, with, without which no one will see the Lord. Notice this. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. Many of us have wondered, either out loud or under the table... Why we have had so little success when it comes to evangelism. Have you ever wondered that? Why is it that so few people are coming to Christ? And I'm not referring just to Christ Fellowship. I mean to local churches all over the world. Why is it that some churches have little evangelistic success? Could it be, I would posit, that our community sees us as a group of grumblers? And as a result, have no interest in examining the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, loving God must precede loving people. I need to be moving in the direction of God, loving God, adoring God. As Steve said earlier, worshiping God. Whatever I say, whatever I do, I do it all to the glory of God. (laughs) For if we compromise in our pursuit of holiness... Serving people ends up becoming mere community service at best and a charade at worst. The antidote for grumbling. The antidote for grumbling is a Christ-saturated attitude that results in godly character, godly influence, and godly encouragement. My challenge for you today is this, and it's a very simple challenge, is will you take the antidote? Will you embrace what the word of God says and realize the toxic venom that results by having a a grumbling, complaining attitude? And when you embrace the antidote, will you choose to surrender to God's plan? Will you surrender to God's prescription? Will you surrender to God's providence? And something I would challenge you to think about is this. If you choose to take the antidote, And I trust that all of us will. What then does repentance look like for you? Who do you need to go to to talk to? Who do you need to send an email to? Who do you need to send a letter to? You might need to drive hundreds of miles to talk to someone face to face and apologize and say, I'm sorry for my my spirit, which has been filled with, with grumbling and bitterness and hatred. And as of today, here's what repentance looks like for me. I choose to glorify the great God of the universe. Once again, the question is this. What would happen in our personal lives, in our families, and in our church families if we all chose to take the antidote? I would submit to you this, that 
marvelous things would begin to happen. That the watching world would begin to say, what's happening at Christ Fellowship? There's something different about that community of believers. Let me challenge you together this morning to take the antidote and to ask God, what would biblical repentance look like for me? Let's close in prayer. Father God, a passage that is laced with deep uh, conviction as well as deep encouragement. God, we know that we are all prone to be like uh, the man in the video. We are all prone to grumbling. We are prone to complaining. We are prone to bickering. And I pray, God, that as a a people of God, as uh, members at Christ Fellowship, that we would choose to take the antidote, that we would realize that a Christ-saturated attitude has some amazing benefits, that we would uh, be godly people, that we would be godly influencers in our community, we would be godly encouragers. May that be said of this church. May we be examples so that the nations would be glad, so that they would delight in you. We realize it starts here, God. And trust you to do great things in the days ahead in the life of this church. First in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This morning as you are going out the back doors, there will be a few folks uh, with offering bags. We'll receive a benevolence uh, fund. This is to help needy folks at, in Christ Fellowship and also in the community. And uh, I want to have you reflect on a few things before we dismiss. As we partake of the elements... This morning, uh, what an honor it is to do that. We do it out of obedience to our Lord, but what a pleasure it is to remember him in this way. And here's what it does. One of the things, it reminds us that Jesus alone is the only one who can help us to obey what he calls us to do. You know, Christ fellowship. One of the reasons we call ourselves Christ Fellowship is because Christ is so vitally important to everything we say and do and believe. I heard uh, Spurgeon used to say this. If a pastor doesn't refer to Jesus in a sermon, it should be his last sermon. So remember this, that it is only Jesus that can enable you to do what he calls you to do. He is the one who gives you the strength. Christ alone, by the power of the gospel. When I think about the power of the gospel, I think about uh, my friends uh, Kyle and Kathy Christensen and their family. I want to have them, uh, in fact, I'm not going to say come forward. I'm going to come up here. And Kyle, if you join me, and, and uh, Kathy and the children, along with the elder council, and Rich and Angela, the missions mat. Um, I think most of you know that Kyle and Kathy are heading out on Thursday. Is that right, Kyle? Uh-huh. Yeah, we're flying out Friday. Okay, flying out Friday to Mexico for a short-term missions trip. And so we want to gather around them and and pray, lay hands on them. And uh, the way we close our services is I typically say, you are sent. It's going to be really fun today. (laughs) (laughs) So, any other elders? All right, great. Why don't I have a word of prayer and then uh, Steve, would you uh, close us in a word of prayer? That'd be great. Thank you. Father, we thank you for the Christiansons. We thank you for leading them uh, to this point in their Christian lives. 
God, I thank you for prompting them to go to a faraway place, to the people in Mexico, uh, to share uh, the word of God, to share uh, the gospel with the people that you love. We commit them to you, God. I pray for uh, safe travels uh, to their destination and also back home. I pray that you would impress upon them uh, your, your plans for them, short-term and long-term, that they, they will be obedient to the call, whatever you would have for them. I pray that they would be uh, fruitful as they minister to the people of Mexico, that uh, you would do great things in their midst. We look forward to hearing uh, stories of uh, the grace of God as they have occasion to minister uh, to these dear people. So we we commit them to you in Jesus' name.